0: All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's go there. We are in verse 29, and uh, verse 29 is kind of a weird verse. Let me read to you verses 29 through 34, so just follow with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Well, Father, we just ask that you would, as we look into your word today, that you would open our hearts and open our minds. God, by your spirit, illuminate this word and make it come alive to change us and transform us. Lord, indeed, to conform us to the very image of the Son. We thank you for this. We pray this, God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's deal with these first few verses, and then uh, we'll proceed from there. We'll see how far we get today. If we're doing really good, we're going to get down to verse 49, but I don't know if we're going to make it that far. All right, verse 29. This is kind of a weird verse. Baptized for the dead. Paul, in this verse, he says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? So that word otherwise up there indicates that this is a continuation of Paul's thought. Well, what is the thought that's being continued here? What is the subject Paul is dealing with? He's dealing with the resurrection of the dead. So we can tell as we're reading Paul's letter to the Corinthians that there were, there were those in the Corinthian church associated with the Corinthian church who did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. Now, this wasn't a weird thing. There were even the Jewish sect of the Sadducees. That's why they were Sadducee, because they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. So after this life, that was it. Paul even used that at one point in, in, uh, when he was being uh, arrested and, and they were trying to, to get him. He even used this kind of this conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, well, you know, the only reason the Sadducees want to get me is because, uh, because I believe in the resurrection from the dead, and they don't. Well, at that point, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they start fussing among one another, and Paul kind of uh, is able to uh, circumvent the situation there. So this idea of not believing in a resurrection wasn't uh, an unusual thing. As a matter of fact, the church in Corinth was in Greece, so this is a Greek church, and these are probably predominantly Greek believers, Gentiles. And so Greek philosophy, Greek thought, uh, the idea of a physical resurrection was not appealing to them at all. Their whole thought was kind of this Gnostic idea that the physical body's kind of this weighing me down, and, you know, one day we're going to get rid of this thing, and, and it's the intellect, it's wisdom, it's knowledge. That's, that's where the, the real deal is. This physical body, this flesh just weights us down. And so if you remember in Acts... When Paul goes to Athens and he's at Mars Hill, Mars Hill was like this open air place where all the philosophers came and they had statues to all the different gods. And the philosophers would sit around all day and philosophize. And Paul comes and he begins to preach to them. And they're, they're tracking with Paul and they, they, he's got their attention until the Bible says he begins to talk about the resurrection from the dead. And then it's like, oh, you believe in a physical resurrection? Oh, uh, you had us, but now you lost us. Well, that was kind of the Greek idea. And so the the church in Corinth is struggling with this because there were those who adhered to the teaching of the Scripture and the resurrection of Christ and the physical resurrection of the body. There were others who said, nah, that's really not the deal. There is no resurrection. And so when Paul begins this verse, he says, otherwise, it's a continuation of this thought. He is still teaching them. He's still talking to them in this letter about The resurrection, there is a resurrection. Christ is risen. Remember, he said, if Christ isn't risen, we are of all men the most pitiable. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Nothing that we have preached to you, nothing that we teach to you, nothing that we've held to has any merit, has any value. If there is no resurrection, if Christ is not risen, then none of us will be risen. And so this is where Paul is Continuing with this thought, otherwise, what will they, I want you to highlight or underline that word they, because the word they, Paul doesn't say otherwise, notice what he doesn't say. Otherwise, what, he does not say, what will we do? He says, what will they? He doesn't include himself in the they. He's excluded from the they. He said, there are they, they, who are they? They who do not believe in a resurrection. They who baptize for the dead. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if indeed the dead do not rise at all? What then are they baptized? Why are they baptized for the dead? So this is kind of a a mystery verse. No one really knows exactly what was going on at the time other than we can know for certain that there were some people who were being baptized for other people, and those other people more than likely were dead. So you have living people being baptized in the place of dead people. We do have, um, we do have a belief system today called Mormonism, and they still practice that. And uh, I would venture to say you know, uh, Mormons would use this verse to justify their practice of baptizing for the dead. There is no scriptural justification whatsoever for baptizing for the dead. Paul is not affirming this practice here. If anything, there is an understood... I believe, um, if you can't, he doesn't openly rebuke them. But this is one of the mysteries of this verse. If Paul is referring to believers being baptized for the dead he does not rebuke them, which is kind of troubling because if you think about all Paul has rebuked the church for in this letter, I mean, for goodness sake, he rebuked women who didn't wear a hat in church, right? And if he's going to rebuke women for not wearing a head covering, don't you think he's going to offer a rebuke here for those who are being baptized for the dead? So what's happening here is Paul is using this argument as an inconsistency, he said, these very people that baptize for the dead are telling you there's no resurrection. If there's not a resurrection, then why are they bothering to baptize for the dead? And so Paul is not affirming this practice. His reference to they who are baptized for the dead seems to draw a distinction between they who do not believe in a resurrection With those who do believe in a resurrection. They who reject the resurrection inconsistently practice this pagan ritual on behalf of those who are already dead. And if the dead do not rise as they erroneously believe, then what is the point of baptizing for the dead? So, in this view, Paul seems to be pointing out the inconsistency of those who baptize for the dead while rejecting the resurrection of the dead. I think the lack of a rebuke indicates that this is understood. There's, the teaching of Scripture is so clear. There's, there's the resurrection of Christ. Remember how Paul begins this chapter? He's, this this, this, uh, this um, creed that was part of the early church, one of the earliest creeds that we can trace back to The early church, perhaps as early as seven years after the resurrection of Jesus. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you first of that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture, and that he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So Paul is saying the proof of the resurrection, the validity of the resurrection is not only there in eyewitness accounts, but it is there in the scripture. There's no denying the resurrection. These people that are baptizing for the dead who don't believe in a resurrection, it's the height of inconsistency or hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it. And so Paul's not affirming this practice. He's pointing out the inconsistency of this practice. The lack of rebuke, I believe, indicates that the orthodox belief of a resurrection was so real and so ingrained, Paul didn't even have to. If you don't believe in a resurrection, it's hard for you to count yourself a believer. And I think we'll see this. Because I think Paul is relating all of this. He links all this when we get down to verse 33 when he says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. So what was happening was evidently the Corinthian church was allowing people who believed and held the false doctrines, they were allowing them in the church, they were having influence in the church to the degree that they were making believers question whether there was really a resurrection or not. And if you question the resurrection, then you've got to question the resurrection of Christ. If you question the resurrection of Christ, then you begin to question everything concerning our Christian faith. This was the point Paul was making. So whatever the practice was, and we don't know for sure what it was, we, here's what we do know for sure. The practice of baptizing for the dead is not an orthodox Christian practice upheld by the whole council of Scripture This lone verse cannot be interpreted with certainty as to the exact practice or its meaning, and it does not justify the practice of baptism for the dead. What we know for certain is that Paul is pointing out the error of not believing in a physical resurrection, a truth that is supported by Scripture. So Paul is pointing out the inconsistency that these who believe this or practice this uh, erroneous practice, he's pointing out their inconsistency. Of course there's a resurrection from the dead. And those people that are telling you there is not a resurrection are being inconsistent at best as they're upholding this practice. Then he says this in the midst of that verse, if the dead do not rise He says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? So here's a question. If the dead do not rise at all, what are the implications of that? In verse 30, he says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Or we could say it like this. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why do we put our lives here in these bodies on this earth? Why do we put ourselves on the line every day if there is no hope beyond this life? Why would we put our lives on the line every day if there is no hope beyond this life? Why do you do what you do if there's no hope beyond this life? Why are you here? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you accept the scripture? Is it only for the hope that you'll receive in this life? It better not be. It better be for a hope that is not only in this life, but beyond this life. And so Paul says, we put our lives in jeopardy every day. We put ourselves out on the line every day, not because of hope in this life, but because of hope beyond this life. We do this because we have a reality and a hope of resurrection. Remember, Ephesians talks about we are raised already with Christ. Resurrection is a present reality, but it's also a future hope. And then in verse 31, he says, I affirm. Here's the, here's the complete thought. I affirm I die daily. I affirm... By the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, the Lord, I die daily. I affirm I die daily. Now, did Paul literally lose his physical life every day? No. But is Paul making a true statement, I die daily? Yes, I believe he is. We do know by Paul's own account that Paul was left for dead more than one time. Paul could have literally lost his physical life had God not raised him up. Whether it was through being stoned or shipwrecked or who knows if he really fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. I don't know. He could have. He, he had been left for dead more than one occasion and God raised him back up. Listen, when they took you outside the city and stoned you to death, they, they didn't just throw little rocks at you. They threw big rocks at you and hit you in the head and knocked you out. And then they just kept throwing rocks at you until you were pulverized and left for dead. And then they walked away. But the Bible says they walked away and God raised me up. They raised, Paul was, was raised up from being stoned and left for dead. So when he says, I die daily, he's not making just kind of a light statement here. I believe the Apostle Paul counted himself dead, dead to this world, dead to this life. Dead to his self-will, his self-life. This is what Jesus tells us to do. And I know that's kind of a heavy deal. I mean, but Jesus said this, if you desire, if any man desires to be my disciple, to follow after me, let him take up his cross and follow me daily. Now, we know what the implications of the cross are, right? When Jesus took up his cross, he didn't take up his cross to go have a picnic and a nice day in the park. He took up his cross, and the end of that journey was death. When Jesus invites us to take up our cross and follow him, the understanding is the end of that journey for us is death. So, when Paul said, I die daily, I affirm I die daily, Paul had crucified his self will, Paul had crucified his flesh. Paul had crucified his life in this world and had given himself totally and completely over to God. God was totally and completely in control of Paul's life. This is the model. This is what we saw in the life of Jesus. This is what we see in Paul's life. This is what the scripture teaches us. This is is the message of the gospel. You say, what in the world is good news about me losing my life and someone else taking control of it? Well, the good news about that is, is that in losing your life, you find it. In being crucified with Christ, you're raised with Christ. In losing control of your life and letting someone else have control of it, that is God who is going to take possession of your life. Is there anyone you would trust with your life more than you would trust God? Yeah, myself. That's usually the answer. Yeah, I trust myself more than I trust God. Now, we wouldn't say that because we know that that's not the correct answer. You know, if I ask someone, I said, do you trust yourself or do you trust God more? Almost every time the answer is going to be, I trust God more. But the reality of how we walk out our life doesn't always reflect that, does it? The reality of how we often walk out our life is that we really trust ourselves more than we trust God. But we know what the right answer is. So we, we say the right answer with our mouth, but we walk out something different. Mm, that's not good. Now... God, in his grace, doesn't say, well, you know, you'd said the right answer, but you're living the wrong answer. I'm done with you. That's not the way God works. God says, I heard what you said, and I even believe that you want to believe that, but you're having trouble walking that out, so I'm going to help you out. This is why Paul says, don't. Th- this is why we also glory in tribulation. Why? Because tribulation is producing something in me. It's producing patience, perseverance. Character, hope. In another place, he says, it's producing in me a more eternal weight of glory. What, what does that mean? I think very simply what it means is that God is conforming me in greater and greater measure to the image of the Son. Through the dealings and the workings of the Spirit in my life. Well, when does the Spirit deal with and work in your life? Only in the good, prosperous, trouble-free times? No. In all the times. There is never a time when the Spirit of God is not working. So it doesn't matter whether you're in the valley of shadow and it's so dark you can't see your hand before your face. You need to know that the shepherd is there leading you, guiding you. If you're on the mountaintop, and I mean the sun is shining, everything is just, it's the perfect day. Listen, God is working. He's molding, he's shaping, he's never not working in your life. He's never not working in my life. This is the assurance that we have. And so Paul says, I affirm, I die daily, I lay down my life, figuratively and literally, literally. For that which is now and for that which is to come. This is a dying in every sense of the word. The fact that Paul's physical life had not yet been taken was only due to God's timing. 1 Corinthians was written sometime in the mid-50s. Probably in about 12 to 13 years from the time Paul wrote this letter. He lost his head in Rome. He was beheaded for his faith. Paul had already counted himself dead to self, dead to this world, but alive in Christ. His hope was not in this world, but in the eternal life of Christ in resurrection, present and future. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in the eternal life of Christ in the resurrection that is present and future. Your resurrection is not just future. Your resurrection is a present reality because it's a present and eternal plan of God. You will be physically resurrected one day because you have already come to partake of the resurrection of Christ because God has already given to you the life of his son by grace through faith. This is the gospel. And the only way to get there is by death. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So then Paul asks in verse 32, he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Why should we be laying down our lives in this world if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What is the advantage of dying daily if the dead do not rise? It's a a beautiful day why are you wasting your time here on Sunday morning when you could be doing something else on this beautiful day? I mean, time is passing. If we only have hope in this life, then we should be out doing something more productive than just listening to me, right? Or do we believe that there there is something beyond this life? Do we believe that this gospel truly is powerful. Do we believe that there is only one name under heaven by which man can be saved? Do we believe that the only message, the only message that can save men, the only message that can transform hearts is the message of the gospel? And the message of the gospel must deal with the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It's not just the resurrection of Christ. It's not just the death of Christ. It is all three, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. It's the dying of something, the putting away of something, and the raising up of something. There is something of us that must die. There is something of us that must be put away. There is something of us that is raised up. Actually, there's nothing of us raised up. We are been brought into Christ. We are raised not with our own life. We've been raised with the life of Christ. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if the dead do not rise, then what is the advantage for us? And the answer Paul gives is there is no advantage for us if the dead do not rise. Let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But that's not what the scripture teaches us. That's not what God has revealed to us. And so Paul gives this warning that we can't, We can't really hear in the reality, I believe, of how he echoes this. Verse 33, do not be deceived. This is a warning. And then he quotes this Greek poet named Menander. Evil company corrupts good habits. Parents, have you ever told your kids that? It's a valid thing. Evil company corrupts good habits. When your kids come to your parents and say, you know, I'm just hanging out with them because I'm trying to get them saved. This is your verse. Evil company corrupts good habits. No, it doesn't work that way. Now, why does Paul say this? Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Paul quotes this Greek poet to make his point to these Greeks that they're keeping close company with those of corrupt belief and corrupt doctrine will in turn corrupt them and has in turn corrupted some of them because now many of them are beginning to question the validity of the resurrection. This is why Paul goes at great length and in great detail talking about the resurrection. Paul says, this is not something I dreamed up. Remember, this is something that was passed down to me. This is something that, that I didn't just come up with. This is a reality and a truth that was passed down to me. It's not just the word of, 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 of me, your apostle. It is the word of countless witnesses. It is written in the scripture. So what, what finally trumps everything, it's not just the word of witnesses, it is the word of God. Don't be deceived. This was a warning then, but it's also a warning for us today. And then he says this in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. This is an exhortation with a rebuke. Paul issued his warning, his exhortation, and his rebuke. And Paul, like Christ, was not writing this to be popular with the Corinthians. He was writing this because he really cared about their souls. And he understood that they were believing a doctrine that was in danger of leading them astray. If we can't believe in the resurrection of Christ, if we don't believe in a risen Christ, then we have no hope, period. And so he offers this exhortation and this rebuke to them. Awake to righteousness. So what is righteousness? I think it's important that we understand. Righteousness, we know, does not come from ourselves. We have no righteousness. We're not born with any righteousness. We can't produce any righteousness ourselves. Our good works don't make us righteous. Our good intentions don't make us righteous. Righteousness is a gift that God gives to us. Only God possesses righteousness. And unless God imputes to us, gives to us his very own righteousness, then we have none. But Paul says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Now, who is Paul talking to here? He's writing this letter to the church. Paul is not writing this letter to the world. Paul's not writing a letter to people in the world who profess to not believe in Jesus. Paul is writing this letter to a church who professes to believe in Jesus. Now, Paul's not naive. Paul is not so naive as to think that the only people that come to the church in Corinth are believers. Obviously, Paul understands there are evil men with false doctrines coming into the church trying to lead the church astray. They're professing faith in Christ, so Paul's like, okay, I'm writing this letter to the church. I understand that within the church there is the reality of those who believe and those who don't believe, those who hold to the truth and those who don't hold to the truth for whatever reason. Maybe it's legitimate lack of knowledge legitimately deceived, or maybe it's malicious, and they're really trying to, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, trying to lead people astray. So Paul makes this declaration, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So righteousness, we always say that righteousness A lot of people say it's right standing with God. Well, how do I come into right standing with God? Only in Christ can I be in right standing. Because the only man to ever live a righteous life was Jesus Christ. The only man acceptable to the Father is Jesus Christ. There's one new man now. That man is Jesus Christ. There's one identity. That identity is Jesus Christ. So my right standing is in Christ. But I want you to understand that Paul says here, awake to righteousness and do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of god so right knowledge as well as right standing righteousness is right knowledge as well as right standing if i'm if i'm seeking if i'm seeking krishna or buddha or any idol you want to name, or any false god you want to name, if I'm seeking someone else, any other name, to be my righteousness, and I have knowledge of that thing which I'm seeking righteousness in, I I don't have right knowledge. And I don't have righteousness. And I don't have right standing. Because I'm looking to trusting in the wrong one. If Christ is our righteousness then it is Christ we are trusting in. So Christ is our righteousness. This is what the Scripture teaches us. And Christ is the truth, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ is the truth. We cannot have Christ and remain in untruth. It's one thing to lack knowledge. It's another thing to willfully reject. The truth. There were those in Corinth who were willfully rejecting the truth of the resurrection. And Paul said, You believers who are keeping company, who are in in intimate fellowship with those who are actively rejecting the truth, you are in danger. Don't be deceived. You're keeping company with these evil men will corrupt your good habits. It will affect what you believe. And Paul tells them, Awake to righteousness. Don't just profess Jesus with your mouth. If he is your Lord, then live as though, believe as though, trust as though. Don't question the very thing that bought and provided your redemption. I mean, if Jesus just died and he wasn't resurrected, this is what Paul says, we're, we're still dead in our sin. The reason his redemption on the cross worked is because he's no longer in the tomb. He's raised. So I can't willfully believe a lie that contradicts Christ, who is my life, and not be in sin. I must awake to righteousness, which means I must repent. I must turn my heart and my mind to the truth. This is what the word repent means. The word repent means to change your mind. If your mind is changed, then everything else will change. If your mind's not changed, you might do the right things outwardly for a while, but eventually you're going to revert back to where your mind is and where your heart is. If your mind and your heart has not been changed by the power of the gospel, if it's not being renewed and conformed to the image of Christ... It's only a matter of time that you're going to reveal the reality of what's going on inside of you. So this is a call to repentance. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 35. Read with me. We'll read a ways here. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow. That body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another flesh of fish another of birds there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another there is one glory of the sun another glory of the moon another glory of the stars for one star differs from another star in glory so also is the resurrection of the dead the body is sown in corruption it's raised in incorruption. it's sown in dishonor it's raised in glory it's sown in weakness it is raised in power It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So the question, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? How are the dead raised up? Here's the answer Paul gives. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. How is the dead raised up? You say, how is the dead raised up? They're dead. How are they going to be raised up? Paul says, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. This is so important. This is why Jesus tells us in John 12, if you love your life in this world, you're going to lose it. But if you'll hate your life in this world, then you will gain it for eternal life. It almost sounds contradictory. It's like, wait a minute, am I supposed to love or hate? What am I supposed to do here? Jesus says, look, if you hate your life, what he means, if you're willing to let go of your life, if you're willing to reject your life in this world, think of a seed. Because in John 12. This is where this verse is sandwiched, it's sandwiched in between Jesus saying, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and die, it remains alone. And then he says, if you love your life in this world, you'll lose it. But if you hate it, you'll gain it for eternal life. It's like the farmer. If the farmer loves his seed so much that he never puts it in the ground and lets it die, what good is that seed going to do him? It won't do him any good. If you love your life in this world so much that you're working overtime to keep it, to hang on to it, Jesus said, all your work's going to be in vain because at the end you're going to lose it. But if you'll hate your life, if you'll treat it like a seed that the farmer has in his possession and he lays that seed into the ground, he lets that seed die, he lets it become undone, he lets it just totally and completely unravel, new life will come. Recreation will come multiplication will come. So Paul says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Death is necessary for us to be made alive. This is true naturally. It's also true spiritually. You'll never experience a physical resurrection until you experience a natural death. Death is necessary for us to be made alive. Crucified with Christ in the flesh, we are raised with Christ in the Spirit. We die in the flesh in corruption, we're raised in the Spirit in in incorruption. We're sown in dishonor, we're raised in glory. Well, with what body do they come? The answer is it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, there is a spiritual body, verse 44. You do not sow the body that shall be. I always tell people when I do funerals and we're at the graveside, I said, this is just like a seed being planted into the ground. And one day God's going to raise it up. Cemeteries all over the world are just simply gardens that God has. And one day he's going to cause all of those seeds to spring forth. This this is just a seed that's going to be planted one day. God's going to raise it up and give it a body as he see fit. So, so you don't sow the body that shall be, but God gives it a body as he pleases. How is it raised up? And each seed is given its own body, verse 38. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. So there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Jesus is the first fruits. The first fruits of what? The first fruits of his kind. So there was the first Adam. I want you to look at this, verse 45. So it was written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus is called the last Adam. There was the first Adam, there was the last Adam. When Jesus died on the cross, he brought an end to that kind. You say, well, there were lots of people born after that. Yeah, but the only ones that are now... Reproduced. Well, I'm talking resurrection. The only kind that Jesus is the first fruits of is of a new kind. He brought an end of one kind. In verse 47, it says, There was the first man, there is the second man. The first man was, the, was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. That word man is Adam. That's what Adam means. Adam means man. So the first Adam was of the earth. The second Adam is the Lord from heaven. There was a first Adam. There is a second Adam. Not the second man reproduced. But a second kind. There was a first kind Adam who fell. And corruption Death came to all men. There is a second man, a second Adam, who is Christ. And all those in Christ shall be made alive. He is the first fruits. Now we have been raised up in Christ. We are the fruit that comes after. He made a way where there was no way. He conquered sin. He conquered the grave. He conquered death and was raised he made a way for us to be raised. Paul says, this is your hope. Not a hope, just future, but a hope now and a hope future. In fact, it's a hope that's eternal. And that eternal hope begins right now in Christ. So the first man was of the earth. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The first man was a natural man. The second man and his kind. Listen, the second man and his kind, that's us if we are in Christ, have a spiritual body. What does that mean, we have a spiritual body? We talked a little bit about this as we're going through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings in the, the adult Bible study. And we talk about spiritual and physical oftentimes. And I don't think spiritual and physical is a good way to think about it because it implies that the spiritual is not physical, which kind of implies that the spiritual has no substance. It's like a ghost, you know, you can, can't touch it. It's, it's not really there. But yet Jesus, after his resurrection, when he showed up on the seashore with the apostles who were out there fishing, and they had a fire going on the beach there, and Jesus, they bring him some fish, and they, Jesus cooks fish, and he eats fish. When Jesus appears to the disciples, and Thomas just days earlier said, look, I know you guys said you saw him, but I wasn't there. And until I can handle him and touch the wounds and touch his body, I'm not going to believe. And at that very moment, Jesus walks into the room through the wall. Thomas falls down. He puts his fingers into the wounds of Jesus. He touches and he handles the body, the resurrected body of Jesus. And he says, my Lord, my God, and Jesus says something amazing to Thomas. He says, Thomas, blessed are you because you, having seen, believe, but more blessed are those who will believe, having not seen. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a physical Jesus. I have by faith and by the Spirit seen Jesus. I know he is real. I know he is risen, but I haven't handled a physical Jesus. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just not there spiritually, I guess. I've not had Jesus come into my bedroom and sit on the end of my bed. That has not happened to me. But that doesn't mean he's not real. I don't believe in Jesus because I've seen him physically. I believe in Jesus because I've seen him by faith. I've seen him the same way Abraham saw him. The same way countless others have seen him by faith. The same way the Corinthians saw him. Paul said, I saw him. I was an eyewitness. I was the last eyewitness. But those Corinthians nevertheless saw Jesus. They saw him by faith. And this is what Paul is saying. You are questioning the very existence of the resurrected Lord of glory. Spiritual doesn't mean it's something that doesn't have substance. Spiritual means it's not related to flesh and blood. It's not related to this temporal corrupted nature that that all things consist of in this fallen world that we live in. The first Adam and all born of him in the flesh have a natural body that will be sown in corruption. The second Adam and all that are born again in him in the spirit have a spiritual body that will be raised one day in incorruption. This is the heavenly man. Look at verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Who is this heavenly man? I'm going to stop right there because I want to talk to you a bit about the heavenly man. And I don't want to take the time today and try to rush through talking to you. But I want to say this to you. This this is such a if we're not careful, we'll read verse 49 and and we'll we'll totally and completely miss the significance of what Paul is saying here. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. It's very easy for us to misunderstand. Or I should say it this way, it's very easy for us to diminish the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. We think heavenly man, well, that's because Jesus came from heaven. That makes it, That's why he's called the heavenly man. No, it, it is so much more than that. When the Bible says that we'll bear the image of the heavenly man, we need to, be, we need to really pray that God would begin to give us a comprehension of what that really means. Who, who is this heavenly man? That Paul talks about. So we're going to stop right there today. And next week. We're going to have a really important discussion. About the heavenly man. And then we're going to go from there. And uh, who knows. We may finish chapter 15 next Sunday. I think we will. Amen. Let's all stand. Now. I'm going to remind you again. Next Saturday. At 6.30, Son of God will be showing at the Howard Theater. So I've got five tickets left. Um, As far as I know, if all the churches uh, that have taken tickets have sold their tickets, both showings should be uh, uh, um, sold out. As of Friday, there were five tickets left for Saturday. I've got five that we've had uh, some turn. We had three turned back in today. And then there's uh, two of them. Uh, that were unsold. And so uh, Greg had three that he's paid for. And Greg said he's willing to um, to just give those to somebody versus let them go to waste. So if if are if someone here that hasn't got tickets or you know someone that, that you want to give tickets to, uh, you can get with Greg and he's got three tickets. I've got two in my office that have not been paid for yet. So we got five. So put it on your calendar and then uh, take a friend, an unchurched friend, and... Use this as an opportunity for discipleship. Amen. Now. As we get ready to close in prayer. I want us to just ask that God would. Do a work by his spirit in our hearts and in our minds. Even when we talk about going to the movie or we talk about discipleship. I don't want those just to become trivial terms or terms that lose their meaning. So, Father in heaven, we we ask that you would do something that you can only do by your spirit. Lord, our words are so limited. and The meanings of our words are so limited. Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, God, begin to expand our comprehension of these very important things that we talk about. Lord, when we talk about the resurrection of Christ... When we talk about being raised in Christ, being seated in heavenly places in Christ, being given all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Lord, when we begin to talk about the things that we have received because we have come to be in Christ. Lord, our prayer today is that these things would not be lost to us. Their meaning and their significance would not just be in human terms or in human understanding. God, we're asking that you would truly open the eyes of our understanding, open our hearts, and open our minds and reveal Christ to us. Lord, this is the point of the Scripture. This is the point of the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of us. It is to reveal to us a man, a person. Salvation is not a thing, it's not a system, it's not a formula, it is a person. His name is Christ. And more than anything, Father God, your church all over the world, Lord, your church, I believe especially in America, needs a revelation of the person of Christ more than anything. God, if your people would come to a revelation of the person of Christ, the person of their salvation, the person who is their life, God, it would truly change and transform us in eternal ways. And Lord, that's what we want. We want to be changed eternally. We want to be transformed eternally. We want our minds to be renewed eternally. Conformed to the Son eternally. God, this is only possible by your grace. And it's only possible... By your spirit. Lord we ask you to do it today. In our hearts. In our minds. In our souls. That you would be glorified in your church. Lord if we've lost our hunger. God I pray that we would become hungry for righteousness. That we would hunger and thirst. And that you would fill us with the only thing. That could possibly satisfy us. Lord, move on our hearts today, each and every one of us. If there are any here who do not know Christ, in your grace, move on their hearts. Open their blind eyes and their deaf ears. Let the gospel find entrance through the door that you open and bring life-changing transformation. Lord, for those that do know you, that do count themselves among the saved. And God, I pray that the word we've heard today would equip us, that we would go from this place not to keep, but to sow. Lord, we would be like that good and faithful farmer that would sow the seed that's been entrusted to us. And as we sow, we trust that you will, in your grace and in your power, bring about new life and transformation. Help us to be faithful laborers in your harvest, God. We pray that you would send forth laborers. Truly the harvest is ready, God. We thank you. We praise you. Be blessed through your church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.